What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on <laughs> is the Canadian people are rising up against the tyrannical government in Ottawa. <laughs> Words I never thought I'd say on this podcast. But if you think about it, there's a trucker protest that has taken over the capital over these COVID restrictions in Canada. Canada is probably one of the most locked down countries on the face of the earth. And while here we in the United States were during Omicron, were complaining about mask mandates in schools and all the rest of it, Ontario literally went back to March 2020. They were locked down. They barred indoor dining and only allowed outdoor dining, which if you've ever been to Toronto in January, nobody's dining outdoors on a patio in January in Canada. So they literally were going down in Omicron back to like the start of the pandemic. And a bunch of Canadians had enough and said, we're going to peacefully protest uh, against our government. They drove their trucks to Ottawa. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has just invoked the Emergencies Act, which is a law that gives him extrajudicial powers to seize bank accounts and call in the military and take police actions in response to this. And it's insanity to watch this unfolding just north of our border. So just to contextualize this for people, and I will share my many, many opinions about Justin Trudeau momentarily, but <laughs> so let's just pick uh, Ontario, which is now cautiously and gradually, their words, easing what they call these public health measures. The next round is scheduled for next week when they're increasing social gathering limits to 25 people indoors and 100 people outdoors, Mark's favorite place in Canada in February. <laughs> this, is, this is people's weddings. You know, This is people's sports events. This is people's family gatherings. Then on March 14th, they're going to lift most capacity limits and increase social gathering limits to 50 people indoors with no limits for outdoor gatherings. Woohoo! They don't have any plans to increase anything after that, of course. But that's just one example of one region in Canada. And I think it's hard for us to understand, even those of us who live right next to the District of Columbia, which has extraordinarily draconian rules that are only now being lifted. But it's hard for us to understand just quite how much the cork has been inside the bottle in Canada, not allowing people to do anything. I think this explains a lot of the frustration that we've seen boiling over. A hundred percent. I mean, look, and I'm just to, for full disclosure, I'm a huge Canada file. I travel there every year. My kids play ice hockey. We go up for training. So I'm, I'm a regular visitor to Ontario. And it's remarkable to see this happening because keep in mind that Canada is the country founded by the people who didn't want to join the American Revolution, who said, no, we're fine with King George. <laughs> we're, we're fine with the Stamp Act. We're fine with what we call the Intolerable Acts. Boston Tea Party, throwing tea into the harbor. We're not down with that. We're going to go form our own country and be loyal to the king. And for this to be happening in that country, in a country whose culture is to accept government mandates and to accept government restrictions on their lives and accept government intervention in their lives, 
when Canadians have been pushed so far that they're willing to launch this kind of protest, you know that the government has become repressive to the point of being intolerable. So I want to ask you a question, Mark, not about our views of Canada, but about the closing down of the Ambassador Bridge. So for people who are not familiar with this bridge, and that makes me as well, (laughs) as I imagine most Americans, this is a bridge between Windsor, Ontario and Detroit in the United States. Hundreds of millions of dollars in trade cross this bridge a lot, for example, for the auto industry in the United States. I want to ask you a challenge question here, Mark. Let's not make this racial. Let's make this political. Occupy Wall Street. If the Occupy Wall Street movement blocked the Ambassador Bridge for a week, what would you say? I'm against blocking the Ambassador Bridge for this. I think that probably the Canadian government and the U.S. government were both right in pushing for an end to that blockade. But that's very different from the protests that are happening in Ottawa on Parliament Hill, which Justin Trudeau, I think, is just as intolerable as blocking commerce over a major bridge. I vividly recall the outrage when President Donald Trump clear Black Lives Matter protesters out of Lafayette Square. And unlike the protesters in Canada, the protesters in Lafayette Square actually set the St. John's Church on fire. (laughs) There were weapons caches found. The protests were incredibly violent at night, though during the day they weren't. And this was considered intolerable. Nobody in Canada is doing that. They're not like January 6th protests. They haven't even entered the building in Parliament. They're outside surrounding the building honking their horns and engaging in peaceful protest and civil disobedience. So I don't understand why this is intolerable or why Justin Trudeau thinks that these people, as he put it, are wrong because they hold unacceptable views. I'm sorry, you don't get to decide what views are acceptable and what views are not in a democracy. So I think these people are engaged in civil disobedience and they have every right to do it and we should stand with them. Good. So, folks, everybody should know that Mark and I did not talk about this topic beforehand. So I actually didn't know what Mark thought. And I'm glad to hear that we agree. In other words, when people, whether part of this movement or not, do things that are illegal, which is, you know, any sort of violence, any sort of weapons, blocking legitimate commerce between the United States and Canada, those things the Canadian and the U.S. government are right to try to clear, although using peaceful means. It's the civil disobedience. It's the ideas. It's the peaceful protest. It's the right to oppose your government and what it's doing. Those are the things that you support and that I support. I'm really glad that we agree. For me, it's just stunning how easy it was to intimidate an organization like GoFundMe, which has no hesitation in supporting leftist causes, but immediately gave in to demands to shut down this money for the Canadian truckers. They had raised $8 million. And what was even more incredible, they planned on giving that money, admittedly with the so-called leaders of this movement's council, to other groups and not giving it back to the people who had donated it. What the hell is going on, to coin a phrase? Well, 
Well, this is the woke tech world, of course, engaging in this. But I mean, these platforms are supposed to be vehicles of democracy, right? They're supposed to enable people to more easily fund protests and all the rest of it. The idea that they're shutting this down in any way, shape or form is outrageous. Several U.S. governors, including Governor DeSantis in Florida and others, and I think the Texas attorney general are actually going to investigate GoFundMe over this. But I just think also people need to understand just how tyrannical the Canadian government has been towards its people up to this situation. My kids play hockey and we have a lot of friends on different hockey teams. And we actually have friends who are Canadians who play hockey in Detroit on a team in Detroit. And at the start of the pandemic, the rule was if you went into the United States and you came back, you had to quarantine for 14 days. And so then they would drive across the Ambassador Bridge, the very bridge that we're talking about here, back and forth to play hockey. And so they came back and under the COVID rules, basically, if you went back into the United States, then it would just reset the quarantine, right? So this girl was going to play on her hockey team in Detroit, coming back and then going back over again. And literally the Canadian police, the RCMP, parked a car outside of her house. And when her husband went to work, They followed him a mile down the road and then pulled him over and opened the trunk to see if he was trying to sneak his daughter out of the house in avoiding quarantine. Can you imagine that happening in the United States? The police literally stalking a normal family to see if they're following the restrictions. She actually ended up moving her daughter to Detroit. And it was literally like crossing the Berlin Wall. She had her husband follow her and make sure she got across the bridge before turning back. This is what has been happening in Canada this entire time. People are being arrested for not wearing masks. There was a video that went viral of a church where the Canadian police literally came in and broke up at a Sunday church service because there were too many people in the church. And Canadians have put up with this for going on two years now. And finally, some of them have just had enough. And they're petitioning their government for redress, and they have every right to do so. We've talked about this before, about the fact that COVID has really awoken the inner authoritarian in a lot of leaders, whether at the local or at the national level. Mary Anastasia O'Grady, who writes the Americas column on the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and she usually writes about Latin America because, you know, Canada, wrote a really good column about this. And she's no wingnut, that's for sure. She wrote... Canada is advertised as a modern democracy that respects pluralism. Yet in practice, Canadians who oppose big government increasingly find they are living under a woke, progressive majoritarianism that believes it owns the truth. Dissidents are hounded out of the public square, and even the prime minister cancels contrarians without batting an eye. It's really true. It's a shame that we have not paid more attention to what is happening in Canada. It's a testament that a lot of this is news, at least to me, who pays attention to the news, that there is a draconian police state over our border. Well, here's why we need to pay attention to it, because this could be our future. Canada is basically... America, except with socialism, right? They look the same. They sound the same. We've got mostly the same restaurants, mostly the same lifestyle, except in Canada, the government is involved in every aspect of your life in ways that it isn't here in the United States. And that power that has slowly accrued in the hands of government, we are now seeing the extreme of what that government will do when its power is challenged. We often joke that Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders want to turn America into Venezuela. 
they want to turn America into Canada in a lot of ways, which is a socialist country with huge taxes, huge government intervention in your lives. And when government becomes bigger and more powerful and more influential and controls your life in so many aspects, then when something like this, when a public health emergency like the pandemic comes, as you point out, all of a sudden people start channeling their inner Stalin and trying to dictate to you how you should live your life. And then when you try and protest and your freedom has gotten too far away from you, you realize, well, maybe we've let it go too far. So this is a cautionary tale for America, because what's happening in Ottawa right now and what's happening across Canada right now could be happening to us in a few years if we're not careful about defending our freedoms. I want to go to our guest, but this is a really interesting topic for just totally political reasons. This is what has happened in Germany as well, because it's not just that the left takes over the tools of government, takes over the press, takes over academia and ends up controlling what Mariana Stasio already called the public square. It is that the political system shifts so far to the left that conservatives are basically Democrats as well. They're just sort of further to the right leftists. They're closer to the center. And this is what's happened. And that's why in a place like Germany, but in a lot of Europe, you have conservative parties that are basically the same as the American Democratic Party. And then there's this huge gulf. And then you have far right parties, people who want to vote conservative, people who actually believe in fiscal conservatism, believe that the government shouldn't control every aspect of their lives. They have no one to vote for unless they want to vote for racists and fascists on the right or Democrats who call themselves conservatives on the left. It is a big problem and something worthy of talking about. But But, but let me go to our guest, because we're actually talking here about Canada. Anthony Fury is a national columnist for the Sun newspaper chain in Canada. He's also written for Time, for the Daily News, for the Literary Review of Canada, and tons and tons of other publications and TV stations. He's the host of a post-media podcast, Full Comment with Anthony Fury, but today he's our guest. But before we turn to our guest, a commercial note from Danny. So folks, first... Everybody might notice that there's a little bit of crackling, a little bit of echo. That's because our AEI studio is under construction. I'm really, really hoping it's to install a martini bar, but I'm not sure. But (laughs) (laughs) as a result, Mark and I are on Zoom. And another reminder, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to review. And don't forget to share our podcast. Join us at our Substack. And thank you. Here's our interview. Well, Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So you recently published a piece that said Canadians were pushed too far and they pushed back. Canada, from our perspective here down south, is a pretty restrained country compared to America when it comes to these protest things. What did it take for Canadians to erupt in this way against COVID restrictions? I think it's just how heavy our COVID restrictions have been. It's been increasingly embarrassing for us to watch what's going on in the U.S. or to see your sporting events and to see thousands or tens of thousands of people sitting together unmasked. I appreciate there are some jurisdictions that have tighter rules than others in the U.S., but it's really been much more restrictive here. I mean, to give you a point of comparison, I know you had some jurisdictions that were really moving forward with reopening quite early, like in Florida. But even when, say, uh, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and I believe I'm okay in describing her as a left-leaning Democrat, she would have been calling for restaurants and gyms to reopen. I think about 12 months ago, when our conservative politicians were saying, no, no, we still have to keep everything locked down. So the attitude has just been so much more towards restrictions, way more than you guys. 
And I think things have really reached a boiling point. And what really pushed these latest protesters to get out into the streets was when we should be getting rid of new rules here in Canada, they layered a new one on the trucker vaccine mandate. And that's what spurred the initial convoy. But it really became a symbol for things much larger. And it really kind of spiraled into a larger social movement. Just so our listeners can understand, here in the United States, when Omicron hit, we didn't lock down again in the same way there was mask mandates, there's certain restrictions, but we didn't go into the full March 2020 mode again. Ontario did, didn't they? Yeah, we did. Ontario and Quebec, which are Canada's two most populous provinces, both went into lockdown pretty much for the entire month of January. And yet Omicron, yes, confirmed by all our health officials, is much milder. Our vaccination rates are much higher than they are in the United States. I mean, it was really frustrating, really maddening for a lot of people to see this happen. Although I will say, psychologically, the polarizing is big here. A lot of people did actually encourage it on. And there are a lot of people who wish we were still in lockdown right now. Anthony, let's just talk for a second about the truckers at the heart of this, because as you described it, this became a magnet and a cause, if you will, for a much larger group of people than Canadian truckers. But the rule that came into place was that truckers who had heretofore been subject to a national exemption for being essential workers on January 15th suddenly came under the rule that if they came into Canada from outside the country, in other words, if they were crossing, in this case, the border between the United States and Canada, they would have to be vaccinated. That rule also, by the way, is in place in the United States. So if they come into the United States, they also need to be vaccinated. That rule came into place just a week afterwards. But I understand that only 10% or so of truckers, according to the trucking union in Canada, are unvaccinated. I mean, Is this really the big deal it's been made out to be? You know, that's a good question. I think kind of when it comes to the numbers game, perhaps not. We did see an initial bit of bare shelves here and supply chain issues, but that happened at the same time there was major storms here. So there's a confluence of issues that were really exacerbating things there. But I think a lot of people who were protesting this, you know, many truckers or allies of the truckers, they themselves may have been vaccinated, but they were just like, come on, good grief, you're just throwing one more thing at us. Like, you know, I myself, I'm vaccinated, but I just can't stand the vaccine passport system. I mean, it's just very annoying that you still have to show that. And it is seen by a lot of people as an inconvenience. So I think there were a lot of kind of broader allies. So Describe the protest for us a little bit, because Trudeau has made this out to be like there are rioters, neo-Nazi rioters outside the parliament. Unlike January 6th here in the United States, they haven't actually stormed the parliament building or done anything like that. Unlike the Black Lives Matter protesters outside uh, Lafayette Square, they didn't try to set any buildings on fire. Have these been largely peaceful protests? Pretty much 100% peaceful. It's really remarkable to see something go on for several weeks tens of thousands of people in the streets, very strong passions, a lot of people pouring gas on the fire, and yet pretty much no violence. The only real notable issue of confirmed violence is there was actually a vehicular ramming at the Winnipeg protest, which was conducted against the Freedom Convoy participants. Four people went to hospital. A lot of people don't know about this because while it was reported a bit in the mainstream news, it wasn't amplified. So it didn't become emblematic of things. Whereas you may have heard that there was one person who showed up on the first day of the convoy on the periphery of it, waving a Nazi flag. The person was never seen again. And that for some reason has come to symbolize all of these people who have been out, tens of thousands of people protesting. And uh, a lot of my colleagues who have been just walking among the protesters, they speak to them. 
They are of different ages, different professions, different religions, ethnicities, walks of life. So it's a pretty diverse movement. So, Anthony, I'm a big believer in democracy and democratic movements, but I want to talk about Trudeau, and I almost called him Pierre Trudeau, which gives away both how old I am and how much I dislike both of them. But Trudeau has made a big case of insinuating exactly the opposite of what you've just said, which is that these are actually people who are violent. These are people who are not simply disturbing the peace with their protest movements and their constant honking and their blocking of streets, but they are impeding trade at the U.S.-Canada border. And the bounties just seized a cache of weapons. Now, I'm looking at the cache of weapons, and I wouldn't call it huge by American standards, but it's certainly a serious <laughs> cache. You know, Mark's house probably has this many weapons, but I'm looking at it, and certainly there were a lot of weapons seized. So I think it's important for people to understand and balance this out. Tell me about what the other side is arguing about exactly how peaceful the intentions of this movement are. Yeah, good point. Good question there. And to bring up what Mark said earlier about the January 6th thing, it seemed like liberal government uh, cabinet members and, and spokespeople were really saying, oh, you know, we don't want a January 6th, even though no one was talking about that sort of stuff. So it seemed like they kind of did. They wanted something like that to make things seem worse than they were. They kept bringing it up nonstop and almost seemed disappointed when they didn't get it. And I know the convoy participants, they all sent out memos to each other saying, do not go inside any government building. Even if someone opens the doors and says, come on in, stay out in the streets, you don't want anything like this. The blockade at the Ambassador Bridge did certainly stop uh, the flow of goods. And that's why our federal government was very keen to it. And I understand President Biden took an interest in it. That makes sense. And then you did have that seizure of weapons just the other day. That happened long after Justin Trudeau did these vilifications of calling people racist. And he threw all the names in there, transphobic, Islamophobic, anything he could find in the playbook and the thesaurus. He sort of brought that out. So, I mean, as things get further entrenched, as tensions increase, it's understandable in past movements. You see things do get heated as more and more days go by. So I don't know what the future will bring. But to date, thankfully, there hasn't been really any violence. Let's talk about Trudeau a little bit because of some of the things he said have just been shocking. And I think our listeners should understand this. He referred to people who are unvaccinated as people who don't believe in science or misogynistic and often racist and take up space. I mean, he said we shouldn't tolerate these people. He said the protesters hold unacceptable views. I'm sorry, in a democracy? Yeah. When people are peacefully protesting, who is Trudeau to decide what are unacceptable views? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the vilification of the unvaccinated has been very strong here in Canada. It's been the most socially contentious thing we've really had throughout these past two years. I did uh, a couple interviews with uh, frontline healthcare workers. One was a nurse. The other was a medical technician. They did not want to get vaccinated and they face vaccine mandates. So they were on the pathway to being fired. And whatever your views are on vaccines and whether or not people should get them, I didn't hear any conspiracy theories. I didn't hear any sort of wild, crazy talk. These were intelligent, articulate ladies who put their position forward. Maybe you're going to disagree with them. Maybe you're going to choose otherwise. Well, we're at the point now where we're pretty much tearing our society apart over the fact that there's 10% of people who, for whatever reason, aren't getting vaccinated in Canada. I mean, I don't understand why we can't just acknowledge, yes, we're in a democracy, we're in a free society. You don't get a 100% take rate on anything. So just take your 90%, do a victory lap, and everybody chill out. And especially since Omicron, apparently uh, the vaccine doesn't stop its spread. It protects you from severe outcomes. But vaccine mandates don't, as the viruses mutated, don't have the same effect that they had even six months ago. 
Yeah. And people don't want to have those conversations now because there's a lot of social rancor. I'm not sure how it was for you guys down in the United States, but there's a lot of implied public health messaging that was, okay, the person who you know who's not vaccinated is unclean and dirty, so you can't invite them to your Christmas gathering, your Thanksgiving gathering. We heard those messages, you know, stay away from them, basically encouraging families and friend groups to split apart over these things. And they did. I mean, it's really been awful what's happened. It really has. And I think it's funny because I feel like the world has really focused on Looney Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and not focused on quite how draconian the rules are in Canada. Explain to us a little bit about the invocation of the Emergencies Act, because this is obviously what Justin Trudeau has done to take full control of the situation on the border, to clear the bridges, to clear the streets, and remarkably also to take control of any bank accounts of people who might be supporting the convoy. Yeah, Danny, that stuff is just crazy. And it's hard in some sense to talk about it because there's no such thing as an expert on this issue because it's never been done before in Canadian history, the invoking of this. It's supposed to be something in a time of incredible emergency. There's the word there where no other feasible response is available. And already a lot of constitutional lawyers are stepping forward and going, well, hold on a second. You had other levers available to you. Basically, Justin Trudeau now has the ability to do quite a lot of things that would normally require adversarial review, either from parliament or judicial review, without that, at least for an interim time period. Yes, it gives them greater powers to break up the blockades, but as their own government releases say, it gives them the ability now to regulate and prohibit public assemblies. Now, they say, of course, oh, this will be moderate. We'll only use it where necessary. Okay, well, what are the assurances of that? What's the guarantee? And because this is the first time it's going to be done, this is kind of the trial run. So even if you think Justin Trudeau is someone of uh, perfectly noble intentions, you really think he's going to get it 100% right? And the financial stuff is really concerning to people because some people take it as a very targeted thing that, okay, there's the way to basically freeze the car insurance of the trucker who refuses to move his truck. But at the same time, the way our deputy prime minister was talking about it, anybody who showed up for the broader protests, not people who have their trucks gridlocking the streets, but the 10,000 people who were there in Ottawa on Saturday, that they are potentially open to being investigation and having their banking information looked at. And the the government can pretty much direct the banks to do this stuff right now. It's truly scary. And hopefully the minimum action does take place. But what, you want to take someone's word when they say, well, I'm here from the government, you know, let me do what I want to do and just trust me on it. When you say it's never been invoked before, people should understand this used to be called, and this should give folks a sense of the gravity of it, this used to be called the War Measures Act. So this was something envisioned for use in war. I guess it was changed in the late 1980s. So let me just ask you a technical question. Does this need to be ratified by the parliament after a week, or is that not correct? Yes, after seven days, it needs to be ratified by parliament. Right now, Justin Trudeau has full use of it on a discretionary interim basis for seven days. No court orders are required for any actions that typically in our society would require a court order. This is a minority government that he has. Now, for Americans, we don't have such a thing as a minority government because we have a different system. But in a parliamentary system, you can have a minority government, and that is what Justin Trudeau has. Is this going to get ratified in seven days? 
It probably will, because we have a party, if you can believe it, that's more left-wing than Justin Trudeau's party called the NDP, which typically props up the Liberal Party for a number of reasons. They're in agreement with them on a lot of issues. They never really have much money, so they don't have a war chest to fight elections. So if they vote against something major, it triggers an election, and they're often reluctant to go into an election. So there's a gentleman, Jagmeet Singh, who's the leader of the well, it's not the third party right now. It's the fourth party in Canada. He has enough votes usually to prop up the liberals. So if he works in lockstep with Trudeau, which he often does, then things are okay. Justin Trudeau only had 32% of the vote in the last election. He actually lost the popular vote to the conservatives, but the way the distribution works, he got the most seats. So he got to stay in power. But yeah, he does need another party to back him up. As I understand it, the Emergencies Act is intended to deal with threats, and this is a quote, to sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of the country. It doesn't strike me that a peaceful protest in front of the Canadian Parliament meets that standard. Is this subject to some sort of judicial review? Can the courts overturn him, or are the courts in Canada so enmeshed in social justice outcomes versus civil liberties that they'll back him up too? Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think one of the reasons people took to the streets, even in the first place, is for the past two years, they feel like politicians have failed them, the media has failed them, public health has failed them, and the judiciary has failed them. Because a lot of these things we've done have been challenged in court, or there's been attempts to challenge them in court, and people haven't gotten a fair hearing. So I'm not sure to what degree court challenges can materialize right now when it comes to this. But right now, I don't think there's any way to get like a stop injunction on what's going on right now. To your point about this just being something acutely happening in Ottawa, one could argue, okay, we had the border blockade that warrants getting the Emergencies Act in. But as some of the premiers have said, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, he said, look, you dealt with that Ontario border blockade with the tools that you already had on hand. That was addressed with before you brought this in. So what's going on here? I mean, a number of people have said it doesn't rise to the threshold. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association has already come out and said, you have not met the threshold to do this. So let's talk about the other accusation that Justin Trudeau has made. This, I should note, the same Justin Trudeau who threw himself wholeheartedly behind the Black Lives Matter protests that took place in the United States. He accused the United States of interfering in Canadian domestic affairs because Americans, through GoFundMe until it was stopped, were supporting the truckers. Now, I saw the New York Times. sounds a lot like Xi Jinping, by the way. (laughs) I mean, yes. Yes, I agree, Mark. Now, the New York Times, I know neither of you will believe this, had an interesting report that actually analyzed a leaked document about those GoFundMe supporters. And in fact, most of them were not in the United States. Most of them, more than 50%, were in Canada. Nonetheless, what audience is Justin Trudeau playing to when he accuses the United States of interfering in Canadian affairs? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, his base is very anti-American in many sense. And there's a lot of people who, I guess, don't define their politics through a positive affirmation of what they believe in, but define themselves negatively. There's a lot of Canadians who like to say, I'm not one of those American Republicans. I'm not one of those Trump supporters. So if Trump says eat your vegetables, they're going to do the opposite. That's kind of the natural thinking position of some people. Actually, very early in the pandemic, one left-leaning public health expert kind of whispered to me, oh, I wish Donald Trump would come out and say he liked lockdowns because then that would be our pathway out of this because people just want to keep them in because he's not crazy about it and because Ron DeSantis isn't crazy about it. So I think there's a lot of that going on in Trudeau's vilification and and really kind of warping of the facts. Because I got to tell you, when that GoFundMe first came about, 
I was watching and they set their target, I think for $20,000 initially just for fuel and food costs. And then it just snowballed into 10 million. And I was refreshing it every two minutes and you'd see the comments. And these were just regular Canadians. I've heard from people who've donated 50 bucks, hundred bucks saying they felt this was symbolizing, you know, what they wanted to stand for. I mean, there's just tons of grassroots, regular folks donating. And I guess it snowballed such that there was interest from Americans and then they started fundraising it too. But the idea that they'd like to see this as some, I don't know, like Koch brothers, AstroTurf conspiracy theory or something like that. I don't know. They want to believe it's that, even though it's just not. Under this emergencies law now, Trudeau's government, if someone gave 25 or $50 to this protest, without any kind of court review, Trudeau's government could seize their bank accounts, freeze their bank accounts, can't he? Yeah. I mean, that's my reading of it. They just have such broad discretion. They'll tell you, oh, no, don't worry, we're not going to do that. Or someone might wait in and say, no, that's not going to happen. But uh, I think that's wishful thinking. I think it certainly could. Imagine for a moment if everything that you've described that's playing out was happening the exact same way, except instead of anti-COVID restriction protesters, this was a Black Lives Matter protest. Is there any chance that any of this could have happened? Absolutely not. Just like you had in the U.S., we had a lot of officials take a knee at those protests. Justin Trudeau actually personally did go out to meet with Black Lives protesters when they arrived in Ottawa, and he took a knee, and he got a lot of public support for that. Thankfully, we didn't have the, I know you had a lot of peaceful BLM protests, but you also had ones that descended into riots and violence. We didn't have really any of that, thankfully, but no, nothing would be comparable for sure. So the Ambassador Bridge is open. I understand that there are a couple of border crossings in Western Canada where protesters are still trying to block the bridges. But given that this happened, you just said, what was his reason for doing this? Okay. I come back to this again, sort of what was his reason? Is it because there are still protests going on that are disruptive in Ottawa? Why, when the next election happens, why does this help Justin Trudeau? Because I don't think we can see this outside the political context. No, it's a really good point. I guess he wants to be seen again as polarizing, creating an us versus them and telling everybody, okay, I'm on this side of things. I'm vilifying these people. And I'm the noble one. So come on side and be the noble one with me. I think it's pretty much what he's doing there. I should note that one thing that's going on that I think officials are grappling with, and they're loath to acknowledge it. And I think this is why they're focusing on financial penalties as opposed to law enforcement penalties, is we have an issue with how a lot of law enforcement individuals, or at least it's viewed as an issue, of course, by the upper brass, a lot of law enforcement individuals are very sympathetic to what's going on right now on the ground. A year ago in Ontario, Premier Doug Ford announced that they were going to stop and card anybody who was walking outside of their home. They're going to shut the children's playgrounds down again. And the police forces in Ontario collectively rose up and put out statements saying, no, we will not enforce that law, which is quite incredible. So we already got a hint there that law enforcement was not happy at being told that they had to enforce some of these more petty laws against their own citizens that they're supposed to serve and protect. There's a lot of that going on right now. There's been videos on social media of different officers saying, I'm not going along with this. A lot of the protesters are themselves, former RCMP officers, are veterans. So there's a lot of tensions there, I think. So you think if he gave an order to clear the square, the police might not comply? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. I mean, I don't know. And that obviously is a troubling situation for any democracy to be in. But I think there's nervousness around that. Is Canada like the United States in this way? Sorry to ask you a naive question, but is Canada like the United States in the sense that Trudeau 
just sort of lives in a in elite bubble where your equivalents of California and New York and Massachusetts are feeding his illusion <laughs> that he actually represents popular will. I see this in some other places, but nowhere as exaggerated as it is in the United States in which elite media and elite academia and the upper reaches of leftism in this country all sing with one voice and the rest of the nation is unheard. Is Canada basically like that? Yeah, I think we've got a lot of similarities. I know you refer to bi-coastal elites and then flyover country. Ours is more Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal are called Laurentian elites. And then Alberta and other Western provinces, they're kind of our version of flyover country, even though Alberta is a great economic engine for the country. So there's a lot of resentment there. And there's talk about Western separatism. We used to have Quebec separatism. That's kind of gone away. But now Alberta separatism is big. So there's a lot of those sort of elite versus more regular folks tensions. But it's interesting because Canada, as you've written, Canada is probably one of the most lockdown countries in the entire world when it comes to COVID. And those lockdowns until very recently have been largely with the support of the country. You don't have the same level of anti-lockdown sentiment in Canada that we have in the United States. Talk to us a little bit about the views of Canadians when it comes to all of this stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. The polling numbers always kind of indicated that it was about two thirds in favor of strict measures or whatever measures were on the table at the time, and then one third against. Although recently we've seen a flipping of those numbers. I mean, you think eventually they'd have to flip if everyone's vaccinated. And now I think what we're getting into is folks who are happy to go along with everything up until now are kind of like, all right, I got my two or three vaccines. Things are milder. What gives? They're getting frustrated. But you are right that we've really had not much of a lockdown critical atmosphere for a while. And and like I said, conservative governments were very happy to go along with a lot of the measures. Because Doug Ford's a conservative and he's been the lockdown cheerleader for this entire time. What's going on with Doug Ford? What's going on with Doug Ford? I got to tell you, that's a question that a lot of the conservative grassroots ask, and they're very frustrated with him. I get CC'd on those emails to his inbox that say, I'll never donate to the party again. I'll never knock on doors for you guys again. I'm so angry. And we've recently had a bit of a split where the conservative opposition leader federally, Aaron O'Toole, he was pretty quickly removed from the party. And for the longest time, federal conservatives did not critique lockdowns. And suddenly, once Aaron O'Toole was booted out, it was a deluge. They've all come out and they've said, "Okay, enough of this. No more restrictions. We've got to lift them all. So he was really holding them back. And I think a lot of the calculus was because Alberta and Ontario, two of the biggest provinces, were very locked down provinces and are led by conservative leaders. Oh, the federal conservatives can't be seen to critique lockdowns or else they're critiquing other conservatives. So, you know, let's not ruffle feathers. And I think now people just aren't going along with that. And I should say Alberta is now out of it. And uh, that premier, Jason Kenney, really criticizing it. But it's remarkable because Doug Ford was when he ran, he was called Canada's Donald Trump and he's populist and all these words that they throw at someone to make you think that he wouldn't be taking the approach he's taking now. So exit question from me, Anthony. Let's go back to where we began. I think one of the things that has frustrated a lot of Canadians, which you detailed, is that you still have in place with no end game in sight, the kind of restrictions that even we had at the absolute height of the pandemic. So at a moment when even California has announced that they're lifting the statewide mask mandate in two weeks, I know still your gasps of shock. What is the end game for Canada? When is Justin Trudeau, one of the state premiers, going to loosen restrictions on the Canadian people? 
Yeah, good question. We have seen a number of provinces say just in the past couple of weeks that they are loosening them. I think based on a combination of public pressure, protests, and all of our public health officials, I got to say, they're all saying those lines, okay, we've got to learn to live with COVID. We need to manage it like the flu now. They've acknowledged that some of the restrictions have done more harm than good. They're trying to deal with the fact that I think a lot of people are psychologically traumatized. So they want to go in that direction. I think now the politicians are trying to save face and make it look like they're not going to roll them back because of the protests in the streets. But I know here in Ontario, they've just revised the rules just the other day. They said they are going to be scaling them back, but the mask mandate is still in place in perpetuity. There's no exit date put on that. And that's frustrating to a lot of people. My kids go to elementary school. I know on certain icy days, they're not going to be able to go out and play during recess because it's just too slippery. The principal doesn't want them to get hurt. So they're going to be in a mask for eight hours straight. And that makes me pretty frustrated. So exit question for me, how does this end? The truckers are standing their ground. The premier has invoked emergency powers. He's seizing bank accounts, exercising these emergency powers economically, though not yet uh, militarily. I mean, what happens? What do you see happening? How do you see this ending? Well, something's got to give. I guess the question is from what side, because to your point, the truckers convoy, they say we're not leaving until things are lifted. They're pretty adamant about that. I mean, the world is heading in this direction. Even our provinces are heading this direction. Trudeau just won't allow himself to say the phrase, learn to live with COVID. He won't allow himself to step away from all of this. So right now, it's really kind of at a standstill, both sides. The momentum is definitely in the direction of lessening restrictions. It's just a matter of, I guess, when Trudeau will stop being so stubborn and let that now natural progression take place. I lied. This is my good question. (laughs) I mean, I'm looking at the video of the Canadian police officers arresting a great-grandfather who had committed the crime of honking his horn while he was driving by in support of the protesters. I see the Canadian government invoking emergency powers to seize bank accounts without judicial review. I see the Canadian government essentially acting like a police state. Is Canada still a free country? Well, that's an interesting question. Right now, if you have the prime minister having these discretionary measures for at least seven days, or I guess for at most seven days without parliamentary review, I don't know. A lot of people are starting telling you can't answer that question. Yes. (laughs) I can't definitively answer either way. It's kind of telling that I feel a little tongue tied uh, by this question. I hope the answer is yes. Of course, we're still a free country out there, but there's certain freedoms that have definitely only been further curtailed. Well, let's put it this way. Canada is a free country governed by a fool who doesn't know what democracy means. A lot of folks are saying that right now. Good. The majority should say that. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks so much, guys. So I thought that was fascinating. I am encouraged by the fact that Canadians are rising up that for the first time, polls are showing the majority want to see the COVID restrictions lifted and that these protesters are standing up for basic freedoms. It's encouraging. One of the things I love about America is we're not down with government telling us what to do still. We still got the spirit of the American Revolution. The school board mom showing up at school board saying, no, you're not going to put masks on our kids. No, you're not going to teach them critical race theory. No, you're not going to indoctrinate them with all these crazy ideas. And you're going to answer to me because I'm in charge of my kids' education. It just shows that how important it is to defend all of these small battles here in the United States, because over time, as the left continues to gain more and more power over our lives in small ways, we end up 
It's like the Senator Helms also used to tell the story about cooking a frog. If you put him in a hot boiling water, he'll jump out. But if you turn up the water slowly, you get cooked frog. And, you know, if we don't win these individual battles, our frog gets cooked. <laughs> You know, and that's what happened in Canada. Canadians slowly allowed their freedoms to be eroded over time. And then the pandemic came and the government started telling them what to do. And they had no recourse but to do this. So good for them for finally fighting back. Now, look, I agree with you that there's a reason why Canada is not known as the land of the free and the home of the brave. I think that you really put your finger on the problem, which is the incremental growth. In each instance, you can think of an example. And in each instance, you say, well, you know, right. I mean, in a lot of those instances, you and I have said no, but other people have been accepting of the notion, Obamacare. Well, you know, okay, for the poorest people, they really need more of a social safety net. And that's true. People do need a social safety net. But this is how you end up spreading. This is how you end up with rampant taxes. This is how you end up with school boards indoctrinating your children in ideas that you don't agree with. COVID has really allowed a massive growth of the administrative state. And one of the things that I fear the most is as we come out of this, especially if we come out of it very slowly, is that there will be no accounting. Not just no accounting, as you and I have talked about, you know, the CDC or about the role of the Chinese, but no accounting about the decisions that have been made at the local, state, and federal levels that have not been beneficial to us. There have been all these studies that have come out that have suggested that lockdowns don't work. I sent you that article the other day about a study done of Sweden. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Sweden, which had no lockdown, but gave a lot of people the latitude to stay home from work, to keep out of school if they didn't do well, to stay home if they were older, their death rate has ended up being on a par with other places that have had draconian lockdowns. Those are the kind of discussions that we should be having in order to wake people up to what the state took from them over the last two years. I want to do an episode on that and also this Johns Hopkins study that came out that showed that lockdowns have had a negligible effect on mortality here in the United States. I think we are going to see over time when we view this with the distance of time that the measures we took to contain COVID actually did more damage than COVID itself in so many ways. They destroyed businesses, they destroyed lives, they caused uh, children to lose months and months of educational gains, which will result in tens and tens of thousands of lifetime earning losses. They've created a mental health crisis for children, all the rest of it. And I mean, if we think it's bad here, imagine what it's like in Canada, where they had the most restrictive lockdowns of any Western country. So this Johns Hopkins issue, I think, is important and shines a light on something else that we need to pay more attention to. I went looking for that study just to understand better what it contained and who the sources were and what it was about. And what was fascinating to me is how hard it was to find. It was ignored by the media. Well, it was on a couple of more conservative pages, but generally speaking, it was nowhere. And you know what? You can't know what you don't know. Who is controlling our information? This is another byproduct of not just the Trump years, but the COVID years. The notion that there is somehow a truth And that random, unelected, unappointed people can be the arbiters of that truth 
so that we can't see a study done by one of the most respected medical and scientific institutions in our nation, Johns Hopkins University. I just... Because it doesn't fit the narrative. But this deserves, all of this deserves scrutiny, not just Canada, which is an outrage. And I'm really ashamed that it took this protest for me to pay attention to the fact that Canadians are really suffering beneath the jackbooted heel of that long haired twit, Justin Trudeau. (laughs) Well, I am. I'm ashamed. I, I, I had no idea. I know more about New Zealand than I do about Canada. But for the record, the re- I've been urging a Canada podcast for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, hockey dad, Tucson. But this is the reality. We need to pay more attention to all of the after effects of this. And I think that's a good lesson for our podcast. So that's why we have this podcast, Danny, so that when you can't find the Johns Hopkins study, we're going to get the authors to come on this podcast and tell us about it. When you don't know what's going on north of the border in Canada and the jackbooted thugs led by Justin Trudeau, we're going to shine a light on it. This is why we created this podcast and why we're going to continue bringing you this kind of scrutiny of uh, things you might not hear elsewhere. Well, amen to that, Mark, and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye.